This is the uh, Interledger bi-weekly call. It's the 19th of August. And uh, on the agenda today, um, high-level overview of uh, the ILP roadmap and you know, um, open discussion from participants on you know, what we've done and um, how you know, one might go about putting together a payment network based on ILP. Um, and then uh, meetings really open for discussion, uh, any other topics that people are interested in. Um, so we're going to start there. Um, the topic was proposed on the um, community forum, which is where we track our agendas. If you're joining the community, um, go to forum.interledger.org and, and there's a, a forum topic every two weeks to track agenda for the upcoming call. Um, so this topic was proposed by um, a user, I'm probably going to get his name completely wrong, but um, Georges Gartry. Um, and he says, it would be very interesting to understand the approach of Interledger's current players and know from them what are the challenges, strategies, tips, and other relevant information for becoming a player. Also, it would be very helpful for the teams that are working to create a payment network based on Interledger protocol to discuss or understand what could be defined as a proper roadmap with general steps that needs to be completed to achieve it. Aligned with the previously proposed, would be great to discuss what are Interledger's short, mid and long-term goals, including the foundations. Based on these goals, could be helpful to discuss if it would be pertinent to create a space where the goals are defined with roadmaps and tools to follow up. Maybe teams could subscribe to a particular goal and work towards it for their own projects. Maybe some new multidisciplinary partnerships could occur. Uh, so quite a lot there. Um, I don't know if there's anyone who wants to volunteer some thoughts around that um, to kick us off. Um, anyone on the call want to have a stab, share some experience? Um, I see a few people on the call who have been part of this journey um, from very early on. Um, you know, challenges, strategies, tips um, for getting involved, um, being a participant on the network. I guess one thing I would point out is maybe the network um, and participating in ILP has probably evolved since the early days. Um, like in the beginning, it was very much a sort of experimental network, people who were participating. It was a sort of community of people who were running their own infrastructure, connecting to each other ad hoc. Um, our very first attempt at that was a thing called ILP Kit, where everyone effectively ran their own wallet. Um, that evolved into um, the, the sort of ILP connector model and then um, sort of implementations based around that where people ran their own connectors. That was some more the movement to ILP v4. Um, and I think these days what I would call the, the network um, is probably where real money's moving between GitHub, Stronghold, Uphold, and Coil. Um, and anyone, I guess, can join that network by finding one of those, you know, working with one of those organizations and pairing with them. Um, I don't want to speak for any of them as to what that would involve, but my guess would be, and we've discussed this on a few recent calls, um, you know, some sort of comfort with that organization that you're not going to get them into any trouble as a regulated money transmitter. They have to be, sort of do their due diligence on who they send and receive money for and on behalf of and for what reason. So 
um, yeah, that, that would be my guess in terms of starting a strategy to become a participant on the network. Um, as we've discussed previously, we're sort of trying to put a proposal together for those players to open up access to their user accounts using ILP so that effectively they become they can be uplinks for people to run their own ILP infrastructure and innovate. So um, I think that would really open things up as well. Um, we can maybe put that on the agenda to discuss a little bit more detail later. Anyone have anything else they want to add? Any experience they've had? I, I mean, the George talks also about um, uh, you know what you know what are um, what's a good roadmap for building a network based on Interledger? I don't know, David or, or any of the other Spring team. You guys built a test net and you've built the Spring payment platform. Um, any thoughts on like a roadmap or, or strategies there? Um, I may be jumping to conclusions, but I think George has uh, uh, posted on the forum previously about experimenting with Interledger for a um, payment network that he's involved in building in South America, but I may have got my lines crossed here. Adrian, I just turned a little bit late. Are you referencing uh, some kind of link or post? It's on the agenda for today. Sorry, um, there was a. The only thing on the agenda today was from a, uh, a poster called um, George or Jorge. Or I don't. I don't really know how to pronounce it. I apologize. But um, asking around, you know, very high level question around like strategies, tips, um, you know, for someone wanting to build a payment network based on Interledger protocol. Um, I think they're trying to understand sort of how they should be going about doing that if they think Interledger is the right protocol for their use case. Um, my my immediate thought is like spin up a network, get get some nodes, get people connected, get a feel for the movement of the money, um, and start to understand specifically what use cases you want to support. Uh, I know a topic that's come up recently, which is of interest, is like what do you consider a good max packet amount for your network and that's kind of driven by use cases so yeah i think it's it's a bit of a open-ended question so i'm happy like if we have nothing else on the agenda to sort of everyone throw in some thoughts and opinions around this and see um if there's anything useful we can put together you know for george but um yeah that's the that's kind of the that's what's on the table at the moment david yeah, it's cool. Thanks. I I, just, I didn't see that before I joined, so I was just reading through that. I, I think your comment about the max packet amount, or just packet amounts in general, is something we've thought a lot about. So Coil and most of the interledger work is geared around micropayments, which is uh, really cool. But I think because there's so many packets floating around, you, you kind of have to be comfortable with um, doesn't seem to happen much at all, honestly, in our, in our test net at least. Um, but in theory, you have to be comfortable with losing a packet here and there. With a micropayments sort of topology, that shouldn't matter. Like maybe you're losing a millionth of a, of a penny. Who cares? Um, but if you wanted to do any kind of like um, high value packets, right? So if you wanted to send like $10 in a single packet, I think the uh there's some some gaps maybe in the protocol in terms of um uh making sure everyone in a payment path gets sort of the same result 
in spring, we, we don't really deal with that because we're, like I said, we're just using um, a micropayment sort of deployment. So if you want to send $10 or $100 or whatnot, you're, you're going to stream it. Um, our max packet sizes are actually decently high. So like um, stream will bump up the packet size to sort of, you know, get the most amount of money in the fewest packets. So um, theoretically in our testnet, like that's a risk, but we don't see many, um, the term I like to use is bisected packet where like one, one node gets one sort of balance update and the other one thinks it should do the opposite. So. I think there's definitely more research there. We've had calls in the past um, yeah. too, which would be worth listening mm -hmm. for, for George. Mm. So I wonder, like you talked about some gaps. Um, anybody else think, like have any thoughts on specifically what are the things we still need to figure out you know, as this protocol and the network evolve? Um, you know, David, you talking about like if we would increase the max packet size, like, you know, the risk of, of, I forget the term you used, but basically having two nodes that are not in agreement about the number of full, full packets that are being exchanged between them. Like, you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about a bilateral protocol that deals with that or is more resilient. Um, but are there other things that people think, you know, are more, more pressing or, or um, on the protocol design side um, that still need to be figured out or, um, that, that are gaps in what we've managed to do so far. Kind of speaking to George's uh, question around roadmap and you know, what's next. I don't, I don't it's not on the roadmap, but another thing that is, should be considered for anyone um, like with a particular use case is the way that interledger routes money so or packets as it were so in um in certain fiat deployments you kind of need a path to stay static especially if there's like kyc or you know certain certain legal requirements mean that uh you can imagine a payment path of three or four participants they all kind of need to agree on the details of what's going on Whereas interledger is a lot more fluid. So like it's basically going to be choosing sort of the best path, like the sender and the receiver don't necessarily have control over that. So that, that's a consideration. There's nothing on the roadmap for us to do anything there, but in theory, we, we, we could uh, introduce something in the protocol that said, Hey, for certain payment flows, they need to traverse this path. That's sort of future because like, um, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. realistically, like the, the addressing on interledger is hierarchical. So you kind of, you receive a, a packet with an address and you decide where to route it. And the assumption is you're going to try and route it to a peer who's most likely to deliver it to the end recipient, but you're not really supposed to infer anything from the address itself other than like an address space you should route it towards. Yeah. Um, but I guess, uh, you know, the CCP or the, the like root exchange protocol stuff that we have today isn't actually live anywhere. No one's actually using it as far as I know. Um, you know, the, most of the routes I know at Coil are, are statically defined, um, for now. 
So I wonder like if there's a, that's a space for some serious evolution of thinking around, you know, maybe there's some early assumptions we made that are not necessarily valid around like roots and uh, the, you know, how much roots are going to be like roots on the internet and how much maybe they actually do need to be more static and more well-defined and um, root selection policies at a, at a connector might actually have to consider things like you're talking about. That's an interesting one. Um, and I wonder how that works with the tension of kind of when you see a packet, all you have is the address, the amount, the condition, and then this blob of data, which in most cases should be encrypted. Yeah, I think one assumption that we all kind of made was that the interledger would be um, like a large graph, sort of like the internet. Mm -hmm. um, in practice, though, in both interledger and other payment networks that are similar to interledger, I won't name names, the depth of the graph is very shallow. Like a lot of the deployments are just bilateral. Um, you could point, you could look at coil as one example where there are not, I don't think, as far as I'm aware, there are no intermediaries between coil and say uphold. Um, and what's interesting is like, that's actually probably the least cost deployment. Like if you add intermediaries between any two nodes, it, it should increase the cost. So uh, in a world where there are just a, like a bunch of point to point deployments that maybe uh, are enabled because of the interoperability of interledger, like to your point, maybe routing and whatnot is um, a no-op perhaps. Yeah, it's, uh, it definitely feels like at least for now, while the network is small, um, most participants are gonna have direct connections to each other. Um, and there's not really a strong incentive to not do that. Like your, your aggregation um, will come as the network grows. Obviously like it's a, it's a kind of exponential um, growth problem. Every new participant is like, you know, that many new peer connections. Um, but what's kind of interesting as well is balancing that um, with, as you say, the simplicity of just, when I have a packet and I see it's you know addressed to someone at Apple, they just send it to Apple. Um, and versus like you know the complexity of changing routes and exchanging routing information and and so on. Um, and the, I I suspect part of the reason why um, or, or the big difference between the internet and interledger and or other networks like that are similar. Um, the big difference that causes them to sort of collect in nodes and hubs is liquidity. So if you have lots of connections, you spreading, you spread liquidity because obviously a connection is, uh, you know, some sort of has liquidity requirements. So if, if somebody, and, and I think we saw this in the early days of lightning as well, that like there was this idea that everybody would be able to run lightning nodes and all connect to each other. But, uh, Lightning has the problem that like you really lock up liquidity for quite a long time when you peer with people um, and it's locked up. So it became, it makes more sense to have uh, sort of hubs that share that like liquidity burden um, amongst a bunch of peers. So maybe that's something that will influence things as well. There'll be people who um, start to establish themselves as hubs um, on the network and it becomes more of a kind of federated model than a so very flat graph. 
I guess we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> Maybe, I, I think that's fine. I guess the one difference I'd point out is just the number of participants right now in the Interledger network is so much smaller than the number of participants in Lightning. Um, yeah, and yeah, most Lightning things, I think, are do go through at least one intermediary. They're not simply bilateral. And if we saw you know, thousands of participants in the Interledger network in the same way, like I think there is with Lightning right now, um, it would probably be very hard to scale you know, just bilateral relationships. And I'm sure there would be some centralization and aggregation of, you know, Interledger providers, the routing, you know, it, it just makes a lot of sense for efficiency, as Stephanie's pointed out. Um, but I yeah. think really optimizing for the case where you don't know um, what nodes uh, each packet is being routed through is really important in that case. Mm. So I have an interesting, like, kind of hypothetical question in, in, in an effort to answer, you know, the topic that was posted. Um, if, you know, some central bank in a country said, okay, we want to, like, we want to rebuild our payment system and we think this interledger thing is, is fantastic, we want to use it. Um, now let's sit down and design what this network's going to look like. Is it, 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 assuming everyone's going to go off, implement what they need to do, and it's going to just get like switched on one day, but switched on with the goal that it's, you know, evolves then beyond that. Um, so let's assume, you know, at least initially, a lot of the liquidity is sitting at banks and the banks are connecting. Um, is the Do you think, what do you think makes the most sense for the banks to like, have ILP connections to some central like ILP hub or the banks to all connect to each other um, and then offer, you know, uplinks to their customers or, so let's just assume, you know, this is the, this is the scenario. I wonder like what, what makes the most sense uh, in designing a new ILP based payment network? We've done some thinking around this uh, at Spring. Uh, we have a term we call the global hub, which you could think of as like a central bank. Um, and basically that's the entity that um, provides connectivity to, I'll, I'll say everyone else in air quotes. So like th this question is also being debated in, in the CBDC sort of realm where at least in the US, the private banks are the ones that they're the only ones that can um, sort of interact with this global hub, which is the Federal Reserve. And the CBDC sort of debate is like, hey, what if we gave users direct access to this central system that's actually like in charge of money? So in interledger terms, you, you could have like one global hub that everyone can just sort of connect to. And like having intermediaries like it, it's questionable if that adds value, if you have like a central place that is in charge of money. But uh, you could also say, well, only like banks can connect to the global hub. So you could imagine kind of like a, like a starfish topology maybe, or, or just a star where all the banks ring around the central global hub and then they route through that, but then they provide connectivity to end users, which is closer to like the US banking system. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the uh, 
CB central bank digital currency uh, space. The federal, I, I read recently the, the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is actually uh, collaborating or doing some kind of pilot with the digital currency uh, initiative at MIT. And they've done a lot of work, kind of. They actually, you know, have people that are actively kind of contributing, um, have on or pay uh, full-time Bitcoin core contributors, and are kind of be active in kind of the cryptocurrency research community. So it's it'll be kind of interesting, like what that collaboration. I guess what I when I kind of think about like what that topology might look like is you could have, you know, a central bank actor that has relationships with a number of the wallets or payment providers, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it makes sense for each individual payment to go through um, that kind of central entity in the same way that banking systems today, like each, each of those payments, many of those payment providers may have We're then, losing you a little bit there, KK, sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry about, sorry. sorry about the noise there. Um, most payments just go directly between payment providers, but because each of those providers may have a relationship with, you know, the Federal Reserve or that central bank, uh, they can, you know, periodically, you know, use that to settle up, in a sense. Um, just kind of, yeah, use that to readjust their credit relationships and and kind of settle through that central entity using their credit lines with that. Yeah, that that's kind of interesting, like breaking the, because historically, you know, your, your clearinghouse system in, um, in a domestic sense uh, is normally centralized so that, you know, it, it well, I'm generalizing a lot, but uh, a lot of the examples I've seen, you'll have a central clearinghouse that is clearing transactions between, you know, participants, so let's call them banks, and then the effect of those cleared transactions are then, you know, passed to the central bank to be settled in central bank money, you know, between the accounts held by the banks. But actually, in an intellectual world, um, I wonder if, you know, Interledger is operating in the clearing layer, do you need a central clearinghouse as well? Can all the banks just have bilateral connections that are still underwritten by accounts at the central bank and have some way to say, well, you know, every time they want to do a settlement, they just do a real-time gross settlement at the central bank um, to another bank um, for, you know, payments that they're processed by Interledger netted out over some period of time. And you leave it basically up to all the participants to establish their own trust lines, but the central bank offers a underwriting and settlement facility. Um, I'm thinking, sort of as I say that, I'm trying to think if uh, what the drawbacks might be to that. I don't know if you guys have, in your thinking, have identified any. Unless the real-time gross settlement itself is also over international. I mean, I guess it's, you know, it, you know, what is it? Well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be because it's a central, like your central bank would generally have a centralized system. It's a single ledger, which is maintaining, you know, accounts for all of the registered banks. Um, uh, and that's central bank money that's moving. Um, but it, yeah, I mean, we don't have to get into the 
the the nitty gritty. It's just an interesting one to consider. I think like that you with Interledger, you don't necessarily need that central hub because, um, but it, the the one disadvantage, and we we the, like this was prominent in the research and modulate as well, is the liquidity cost of everybody having bilateral relationships. You spread your liquidity a lot more. Um, and even though it's not, you know, you might have a central settlement service, you still have to keep credit lines open with each individual peer. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to have to drop off, um, but Matt has offered to continue shepherding this call to close. Um, it's an interesting discussion, so I'm, I'm sad to be leaving. Um, Matt, I'm going to make you the host and, and let you take over from here. Um, and um, there was nothing else on the agenda, so I don't know if anyone else has anything else to propose or happy to keep um, spinning on this idea. Um, feel free, but unfortunately, I'm going to have to drop now and, and join a, an urgent call that I can't miss. Thanks, Adrian. Um, yeah, I, I'm sure Kincaid and David have more to add to what Adrian just said. Uh, I'm sort of curious, I think in the last call, Stefan brought up this idea that maybe an intermediary connector could be somehow considered to be like not in the flow of funds. Uh, I may be misrepresenting his previous comment, but um, like what, one, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, like from the white paper, from the Interledger white paper, like the idea of the connector is like, there's there's this peer-to-peer -peer trust. So I only need to trust the connector, let's say, and that sort of propagates across the network, which is, it's genius. Um, but in practice, in the US at least, like um, clearing transactions even are only really allowed by regulated money transmitters. And so there's this huge barrier to become a connector that's in the flow of funds. Um, and so, like I've, I've tried to think a lot like, well, gee, given that it's hard to be a connector, what if uh, sender and receiver could just peer directly uh, and no connector needed, right? It would kind of solve that compliance problem. But then it sort of begs the question, um, like, what is that? What is that? When a sender and connector come together directly, they can speak interledger to each other but they're effectively creating IOUs and like the, the sort of whole point of the intermediary connector is that you don't have to trust everyone in the whole interledger graph, you just trust your one connector. Um, so anyway, that would be interesting if interledger could somehow enable um, what I'll call like trustless IOUs. So any sender can approach any receiver Yes, those are those are like untrustworthy IOUs, but they could accrue if it like so you could imagine um, Amazon, for example, being one side of that where they're accruing all these IOUs and somehow settling maybe with crypto, maybe with real-time uh, payment system, whatever. Um, anyway, some interesting lines of thought there, but like as I see the sort of two possible paths of interledger, it's like if we want the sort of traditional idea of the interledger topology where you have connectors and routing and all of that, like 
sometimes it feels like the only possible path there is to get the banking system to adopt interledger, which is a big lift. Yeah, I don't necessarily have opinions there. Uh, yeah. Um, like, I think there are a lot of reasons aside from trust that, you know, the sender and receiver pairing directly with one another may not um, work. You know, I, I, I think about like, if I had to peer directly with every merchant I buy something from, and then it becomes like, why, why does this merchant want IOUs from me? And, you know, if I'm using euros and the merchant wants dollars, like, that's not, and these, you know, IOUs are denominated in different asset, you know, different currencies, that's not very useful to the merchants. Um, they may want IOUs that they can then spend on something that's useful to them, which means, you know, pairing with the payment provider that, you know, they can use to purchase other things. And then there's, you know, of course, the scalability of like having to manage so many bilateral relationships. So I, I like, I think, I think there are a lot of reasons the routing um, is useful. Going back to kind of the last call, I think the the point was made by Stefan that um, the the sender, uh, the initiator of the ILP packet, does not necessarily need money transmission licensing if they're getting delegated access to um, a registered money transmitter and se sending through the uplink of a registered money transmitter. And so that gives them, so they're not, no liability is being created between them and that connector so they can kind of send through that without um, the necessary licensing. And that would enable a lot more innovation in that, like, you can, so many more people can build wallets without um, kind of requiring that licensing. Yeah, thanks for clarifying that. I, I'm remembering that now, too. Yeah, I think I will say, the important thing was... Oh, go ahead. Uh, no, no, like, that, that, like, I think Stefan basically brought up that if you look at how current fintech players are playing in the traditional space, banks are basically just... Uh, holding the liability for them. And uh, a lot of these fintech players are just doing it um, sort of under the umbrella of the bank. Um, so like, and that's by design in the sense that the banks can be slower and, and, and be just sort of like the, the regulated entities, but you can have innovation as long as you can be sort of like under that umbrella. Um, because to like the, the scenario Kincaid pointed out, it's no different from me actually using Venmo, PayPal, or some other sort of online payment system where I just send an API call um, using Interledger if I connect up as a sender and send it over the network. Um, so whether that terminates at like a merchant acquirer, that being like Stripe, um, who, who then might be sort of under a different, um, bigger, bigger player, that process would still work. And, and I think that's much more attainable and it's, it's sort of the route we're going now is like working under some of the, the, the more licensed entities like GitHub and Uphold and trying to find mechanisms that um, entities can still be on the Interledger network, but not required to be full digital wallets and fully regulated in all, in all states and stuff. Yeah, so I, I mean, in terms of like the future of Interledger, like we should, we should definitely keep pushing on what I'll call the current path, which is go get regulated entities to run connectors effectively. I do think though that like, you know, five, six, however many years it is now in, like if we just do that, we're, we're gonna be 
you know, like 10 years in and like, it's going to take for a long time, I think. And it's already taken a long time. So I do think it would be interesting to explore maybe, I don't know what the right way is. So the sender receiver pairing thing is, is just one, one idea, but like, what are the ideas that would allow interledger to be set up by like individuals that to actually like provide value? So the best I can think of is like a sender receiver transaction is not money transmission, right? It's just a payment. Um, and actually there, there's a whole, I think a whole bunch of reasons why that might be useful, but stepping back from that specific example, like what are the things the interledger community can do to like essentially get interledger more, more broadly adopted knowing that if we just say run more connectors, like it's probably not going to work because to run a connector, you have to be like a Venmo. You have to five, 10, $20 million. You're going to like, you have to be a big company likely to run a connector. Yeah. I think, I think the trick is like, I think we shouldn't think of it as like, we're a solution looking for a problem. Um, like the, I think we, we need to be, be a bit more looking, um, looking more actively for problem spaces that can be solved better because like, like you said, like just running more connectors is not going to be like a, a, a sort of, you're not going to have sudden uptick. I think we need to keep exploring ways in which Interledger solves unique problems and being flexible enough in the protocol to adapt to that. Um, and I think that's sort of where we're going. Like initially, like the, 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 the micropayments made sense and that's where it's going. But now when we look at more traditional um, sort of like open payments, your retail payment stuff, then we start looking, okay, well, maybe the, 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 the small, the very small packets don't make sense. So we might need to up the packet sizes for this to be more logistically possible for that setting. Um, how do we adapt in the protocol for that? Um, yeah, I, I, I don't want to build tech just for the sake of building tech because we've done a lot of that. Um, and it's, it's sort of been, been in vain. Um, yeah, like the, like, you say like setting up direct relations. Like I think it's good thinking about other ways to think about it. But when I think about that, I'm like, people can currently just go into any crypto network, right? And, and set up like a bilateral relationship to just send crypto to each other. And you basically get the same thing. So I'm wondering what value you get with Interledger over that sort of experience. Yeah, so um, in that narrow view, you're, you're totally right. Like. Um... It, it, that's all possible. Um, I think the the benefit is like actually the stuff that interacts with with any given pers person or merchants or company's payment software. So you can imagine like imagine you have ten, you're a company and you have ten systems that interact with your payment software, and now you have to support Bitcoin and XRP and fiat and like let's say a hundred different things like you, you, you need an abstraction. And so like, even though um, settlement, like, you know, the, the abstraction of interledger where you, you split clearing into one thing and all your systems deal with that clearing interface, which is, you know, I would advocate should be interledger. And then settlement, yes, you, you do need a way to settle um, over these like, let's call them layer one ledgers, but you don't build anything to those APIs other than like make payment. 
And then all of your complexity and all of your like sort of business systems are built to Interledger. It's uh, not a perfect argument, I will admit, but um, we've often focused on Interledger as a liquidity tool or Interledger as a bunch of different things. But I think in this view, it would be like the main benefit of Interledger is the interface, the common API, such that you would build software to it. Yeah, that's interesting. So basically, like you, you have a common clearing interface and then try find some way of doing the settlement. Like I said, like, I mean, you could do that currently, but you wouldn't have a common clearing interface for building sort of arbitrary applications on top of that. Yeah. And theoretically with settlement engines, maybe you don't even have to build that layer one thing because like there's four or five that are really common and maybe that gets you all the way or, or there's 10 even. There's an interesting payments company also called Klarna, um, which is big in, I think in Europe, but effectively what you can do with Klarna is you, you go to a merchant and you put an item in your cart or, or two or whatever, and you check out with like your name and they do, they do like a soft credit check, but then they're like, cool, thank you for buying whatever you just put in your cart. And then you pay Klarna later. You, you usually have like two weeks or whatever they they make a credit decision on you. What's interesting is like, you're actually checking out with an um, unsecured IOU in a lot of cases, like the credit check is, especially in the US is pretty soft. Um, and so merchants like, um, I worked on an integration of it. And so, you know, you have to be careful depending on the credit check maybe not to ship your product or like you only ship your product if it's like pretty low value because you, you have to make this fraud decision. But what's interesting about that, that whole thing is that's, that sort of reduces to an interledger sender and receiver making a clearing, like a, an unsecured clearing payment directly to each other. So like the trust is pretty low because you could, you could easily cheat any receiver. But if you build some systems on top of it to control for fraud, um, theoretically, you could create a payment system where the, there's no connector needed, like senders and receivers can just approach each other at random. So my take, I think, is it probably overstates the value of the of Interledger as an interface. Like, I, I don't actually think the Interledger is that good of an interface for that use case. It'd be just as easy for, you know, two entities just to build their own you know, RPC protocol, um, you know, you can drop a lot of like the interledger, you know, condition, data, expiry, et cetera, you don't need, you probably want some other stuff in that case. Um, and that'd be like a lot simpler, it'd be easier to implement and you don't have like this huge dependency on, not huge, but like this kind of dependency on the interledger protocol stack. Rather like, I think we should probably, I, I think that's right that we probably shouldn't, you know, try to search for, you know, find problems and then try to like stick Interledger, you know, in there, but rather look at like, okay, what, what problems is this good at solving? And in my view, I think, I think there are probably two. One is micropayments, like that traditional, that other solutions cannot, cannot really solve. One is micropayments and the other is like kind of inter-networking, siloed payment networks. 
and aside from that, I'm not really sure, you know, what this, you know, if there's much else that like it's useful for. Like I like in this bilateral case, for example, like I wonder, do you even need a clearing layer at all if you and your counterparty share this underlying network? And particularly if that that you know payment network has fast offers fast settlement. Um, you know, if it's a payment channel or if it's XRP or you know, what have you. I think the point is that uh, while you may share a clearing, uh, sorry, a settlement layer or, or with any arbitrary person, uh, it's likely that you'll have, uh, when, you, when you scale to many people, there will be many settlement layers. So you, you would want some kind of abstraction, um, like, you know, take it to like a, like sort of a large number, like 50 settlement layers. You, you want to do as little as possible in all 50 of those settlement layers and do, do all of your work up in a clearing layer. One for software development, but two for like speed. But then, but, um, but clearing with you though, like I, what I don't understand though is like if the clearing is with each of those individual counterparties, right? And how is the yeah. clearing providing value to any one of those? Just common interfacing. But to your point, like yeah, there's a lot in Interledger where if you're getting rid of the connector and the intermediary networks, maybe you would make different design choices or a different protocol. But if our if our goal as a foundation is interoperability, um, we're in a narrow like niche where when we say interoperability must involve connectors and the traditional view of the interledger network. That's a cool vision. It's just not, it's not happening. So we have to ask ourselves, do we keep pushing on the thing that isn't happening? Do we do something else? Do we do both? Uh, a couple of, one, I, I think you brought this up, but the settlement engine interface, I think, like, I don't think you need Interledger for that use case. You can just use the settlement engine interface, and that kind of, like, provides your abstraction layer, probably. Um, yeah, possibly. I mean, uh, it, it, I think it's a use case we haven't, uh, we haven't thought about at all, really, and so... You know, I'm hesitant to like design the protocol here, but I think the broader state, the broader sort of thought is more like, how do we get, basically, how do we get more usage? So uh, another, I guess, one final thought I, that I forgot to mention is like this notion of problem, uh, you know, building a solution without a problem. Um, Frankly, the problem is 2.9% of every transaction from Visa, you know, PayPal, MasterCard that there is no alternative for. Like even Coil has this problem where the only way to sign up to Coil right now is to pay 2.9% or whatever to Visa or, you know, credit card network or bank network. Um, it seems like that is a problem that we should solve and like, Interledger could have solved that if the people that run the monopoly would, would you know, embrace Interledger, but they, like, they're sort of a natural, like, they probably don't want to embrace Interledger to have their fees be reduced. So definitely there's a problem here. Like, it's just, 
maybe interledger is not the right solution, but there's probably a solution. And that solution probably also isn't just use Bitcoin or use XRP. Like we do have a cross ledger problem still. But that's definitely kind of interesting in that like we see, because that's, that's a very different problem than like kind of what I see solving. And probably affects like how you kind of design or uh, implement a, a, a lot of the protocol. So that's, that's interesting. Can you speak more to that? Like, what um, what is the problem you see interledger solving? Well, micro micropayments and internetworking, siloed kind of providers or networks. Not really, not as much solving uh, kind of fees per se, because I think that's just you know that's kind of solving this monopoly problem, and I don't. It seems it seems much. It seems like there are like more social um, arrangements that kind of influence that, that it's probably harder for any single technology to, to support, at least in the near And you just have this huge, the other problem is like, you have this huge network effect, like with the card networks, for instance, we're talking about 3%. Or app stores, um, and how do you, you you can't get around that in, in in the near term when you have a small network? So what value does Interledger provide when the network is very small? It enables micropayments, which you can't do with those traditional systems, and it kind of interneworks uh, providers and solves solves problems. Uh, Internetwork. Kincaid, can you just clarify when you talk about internetworking, sort of disparate ledgers or systems? Uh, maybe you didn't use the word ledger on purpose. Uh, maybe systems. Can you just clarify, like, give it a concrete example? Um, sure. Like, I'm, you know, I'm PayPal. You're, you're Venmo. Well, actually, that's not a good example. It's PayPal owns Venmo. But um, I PayPal your Square Square Cash, and uh, you know, then there's Coinbase. Um, Interledger enables users of Venmo to make payment. You know, if if I have a relationship with Square Cash, Square Cash has a relationship with Coinbase. Interledger enables Venmo users to seamlessly make payments with Coinbase users, or maybe anyone Coinbase is connected to, um, without all of these parties having to have a relationship with one another. Um, it, 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 it minimizes the dependencies that each of these parties needs to have in order to seamlessly transact. Yeah, I think like funny enough, like that's not far from what David's describing in the peer-to-peer -peer case. Like I, I know your case would be you would join the greater interledger network, but I do think that's something that we could probably do better is like, I'm sure lots of payment companies are basically using card rails currently to do a lot of that internetworking because it's basically ubiquitous. Um, so a lot of them use like uh, the ability to pay into a card um, it's like push, push, pay, push based payments into a card or something. I don't actually know the correct term, but there is a mechanism for that where you can basically pay into a credit card or debit card um, to do that sort of stuff. But obviously you pay the fees and like the, it's very inflexible because you basically 
beholden to the ISO messaging standard for how you do stuff. Um, so if you wanted to do stuff on top of that, you, you, you're basically having to do custom stuff. Um, so Interledger, yeah, I, I do agree that Interledger actually provides a lot of value there. And I don't know if we've explored like the tooling and the messaging enough to, for the players who would be looking at that type of stuff to do it. I'd also note if you want to, uh, like David mentioned, that coil charges, you know, or you, coil, but coil is still, you know, kind of taking on that interchange fee. You know, you could imagine a larger provider that allows users to kind of refund their account using ACH, uh, for example, or something that has much lower fees. And that would kind of minimize that cost. That makes sense. Um, yeah, sorry, David, go ahead. Yeah, it was just, uh, that's an interesting thing where like, what, you know, what are Coil's options, right? Like probably um, Stripe, I think Stripe uh, supports ACH. Um, but effectively you're, you're picking a payment aggregator, right? You're picking an API that can give you access to all of those like underlying settlement engines. So. And settlement engines being like, do I want to let my user pay with a credit card? Do I want to let them pay with ACH? And you know, if Coil says, now I want also to offer XRP, hopefully Stripe offers that, but of course they don't. Um, you know, it would be ideal if there was a single API that you could settle, uh, you could clear with people, but then settle using like arbitrary uh, layer ones. But if you're Coil, for example, you, you probably don't want to write um, half your integration to Stripe and then write another integration for XRP because Stripe doesn't support XRP and then write another integration like you're, you're going to write an abstraction layer. Um, it would be nice if that abstraction layer was compatible with all of the um, people that approach you and want to pay you. Is this the same entity performing the settlements as the entity that is interacting with that API? I don't think it has to be. I mean, this again, this is like an undefined protocol. Like, it, this is just like me talking, but um, like in a, in a bilateral interledger clearing protocol that would be one sort of thing that happens. And then, you know, settlement or whatever could go through whoever you want to, but you would write all of your coil software to the, that clearing layer. Because in that Maybe case, like, then Interledger does make a lot of sense because, you know, you have some provider like, you know, Upholder, whoever that has all these kind of settlement integrations with all the parties I want to transact with, and then I simply transact with them over Interledger. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a hybrid approach too here. Or perhaps like what I'm describing just evolves to, hey, there's a, there's a connector between the sender and the receiver called Uphold. 
you know. Yeah, I think like, I mean, I think we, we all realize like that the progress has been slow, but I think we like from, from, from my side anyway, definitely things are starting to turn in my opinion. Um, having, having solid providers now, having a better understanding of how we want to move in this space. And I think the big limiting factor is like it, psychologically, we, there's not been a case for like removing real money, if you can put it that way. Um, and I think once people can get their hands on that, we should be able to see more innovation in this space. Well, that's, that's the hypothesis anyway. I'd also add, I think like marketing has been a huge issue for adoption and kind of evangelizing interledger and such. And, you know, I've been, I've been a long time reader of, you know, this tech blog, The Verge, and very popular tech blog. And for the first time, uh, I'm gonna post this like kind of in the chat, but for the first time this morning, there is a mention of Interledger and a direct link to the Interledger website in the Verge. And just kind of like, and of course, boiling. And, and, um, that, like that was, that's really cool. Just say, like, maybe it's just a matter of, like, you know, you know, better mark, you know, marketing and kind of getting that kind of coverage to get more participants interested. In, you know. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that's part of the trick. I think, like, I think Interledger in its initial form with this federated graph of like sort of untrusted peers um, is very much the message that's sort of still out there. And we're realizing that's not very much the case. And I, I agree. I think like we, 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 we failed on the marketing side for, for it. And that's obviously hampered adoption or even just people realizing what it can be used for. Because quite frankly, if I go to interledger.org right now, I, it's quite a stretch to get to the point where I understand how and where I should use it if I need a problem to be solved or the problem that it does solve to, that this would be the best use of, of or technology to use. Um, yeah, I'm gonna leave it at there. I, I have to also drop off soon. Um, does anybody wanna add any closing thoughts in the last 30 seconds? Okay, um, the recording will be available. Um, Sabina will put it on uh, your favorite podcasting app soon, hopefully. And then the next call we'll have is in two weeks time. Um, something hopefully we discuss in two weeks time. It's gonna be September the 2nd. Um, I think we should round out back to the discussion of like the documentation that we had. Maybe we should try and push that forward because I think we, we have sort of let that run a, a, a bit um, a bit away again. So uh, let's put that on the, the agenda for next week. And I think we should stop making progress there to start updating some of these pain points that we seem to repeatedly bring up. Um, have a great day, everybody. Thanks,